This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, the extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How are you guys out there? Uh, I am having a wacky day because uh, uh, my wife and I have done something. We have made we have made a mistake. We should not be homeowners. We sort of fell into it last year, weren't sure how that came to be, did not see that ever happening in our lives, but now many things are our responsibility. Used to rent, used to be able to call a guy, say, hey, it's your, your problem, come fix this. Now things go poorly and we're like, well, I don't even know who to call about that. This will be the rest of our day. So uh, we have a couple of what we thought were power lines extending from a junction box uh, atop our garage, uh, across our backyard to our house. Once last year, a giant, giant branch came down, tore these two cables down for a few hours. I was like, we can't go outside. Those are definitely like live power lines. Like we'll be electrocuted. And it's like, no, they don't even seem to be tore open. Actually, all the power seems to be good to the house. Maybe we're okay. This this should be fine. Um, we had some guys come out. Uh, they uh, went and uh, put the lines back up and they're like, by the way, these are like phone lines, uh, satellite TV lines uh, for services that you don't use. Maybe find out what the uh, previous owners use. You can call those companies. They'll come take it down. Talk to the previous owners. They're like, we did not have landlines, nor did we have satellite TV. We went back several people. No one knows who it was. So we were finally like, these are just two sets of cables that uh, that now have repeatedly been knocked down in our backyard. That look terrifying. They put our dog in danger. I don't think anything's going through them. So uh, my wife spent a few days on Reddit researching whether or not we could clip these wires without being electrocuted. We went out, we checked the boxes, we went back and forth and checked things. It's like, yes, this is definitely for a satellite TV and for a landline phone. I think we're going to be good. So we went out with a couple of bolt cutters uh, and we were like, we'll each do one. And that way, if one of us gets electrocuted, the other one can drive us to the hospital. That is that is marriage, is being like, we're going to do something that is maybe dumb, but we have a plan in place. We cut the two wires, got everything out of the backyard, cut the other end uh, all the way up there, the junction box, rolled up the wires, got them in the trash, came back into the house. Nothing nothing here can seem to connect to the internet. Nothing's connecting to the internet. The, the TV's not working. Uh, web, uh, laptops not going anywhere. We definitely cut a line uh, that connects us to the internet, despite thinking that we'd identified which one that was. So we are having just the weirdest uh, rom-com sort of panic thing where we're like, wait, what else in the house doesn't work right now? Uh, so we can't watch TV. Um, wait, hold on. The the heater, air conditioning unit, that's controlled by Wi-Fi. Is that still working? And it's having some problems, but it's doing fine. And then we're like, are there rooms where 
the lights won't turn on. I, I walked through the kitchen and just started touching pans. I was like, do you think this pan still works? So we've gone above and beyond into this comedic territory. But at the same time, we're like, so what is happening? And the best part of this is that my wife was going into this weekend with the idea she was going to do a big cleanse, big juice cleanse, uh, get things straight. And then I was like, all right, well, like maybe no TV. That's part of your cleanse. And she's like, absolutely fuck not. Either I'm putting no junk in my body or or I, I need junk in my brain if I'm doing that. Like, I, it's got to be one or the other. Like, I can't do a cleanse and just be left alone with my thoughts and not able to watch shows about people getting married that will then not remain married because they're terrible. So just having the the most millennial time with that. Going to have to figure that one out in the morning. Uh, it also coincided with five different stories coming through at the pitch that I was like, this needs to go up now. And I was like, okay. I need to find like a neighborhood bar or go to a friend's house or uh, go over to Debbie, the neighbor, and just be really polite about like, "Mm, can I please borrow your code for a bit? Uh, Anyway, we have a great episode of the show today uh, that thank God uh, our editor Terrence is putting together somewhere else because God knows I can't. Uh, Terrence, I hope you got this file. Who knows how I'm uploading it? Probably from outside of an Applebee's somewhere. Uh, today, uh, we have uh, Dave Jorgensen, uh, who is the Washington Post TikTok guy. Uh, huge, huge viral star. You've definitely seen his stuff if you're anywhere on TikTok or Twitter. Uh, he is from Kansas City, and we have a wonderful conversation with him. Uh, we have Nick's Music Corner, as always. And uh, we also have a, a very fun reading today. Uh, it is of Parties Over, our story about Port Fonda. Uh, as read by Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment. And by fun reading, I mean that it is uh, bleak and dark as hell. Uh, So here's a piece of incredible journalism that uh, we could not be prouder of. Uh, So thrilled that we get to share it with you in an audio format today. Uh, This is the result of months of of hard work uh, from two different journalists that... um, Boy, put their heart and soul into this, and it has made a huge difference to the community. So uh, here, here is Party's Over. Party's Over. Port Fonda's cool kid reputation masks years of sexual harassment, fear, and abuse. By Liz Cook and Natalie Gallagher. It should have been easy. Valentine's Day 2020 was a Friday. Guaranteed money for any restaurant with a shred of ambiance. Port Fonda, Kansas City's nationally lauded Mexican restaurant, was hosting a four-course dinner inspired by Laura Esquivel's novel Like Water for Chocolate. The restaurant had put on the same themed dinner three years in a row, even reusing the same advertising. In an alternate reality, chef owner Patrick Ryan and his staff might have been on autopilot. But in this one, everything was falling apart. Ryan was in a particularly foul mood. He'd yelled at servers and kitchen staff and driven more than one employee to tears. Before dinner service began, he'd thrown two of the restaurant's KitchenAid stand mixers across the back hallway in a fit of rage. Nancy Wright, Port Fonda's general manager at the time, left midway through the dinner, exhausted and demoralized, after she says Ryan screamed at her about not having enough wine glasses ready for the third course. After Wright left, server Megan Briggins watched Ryan toss out a chili relleno, thinking he had had one too many. When he finished plating the course, he came up one short. He grabbed it out of the trash, put it on the plate, and put the sauce over it, Briggins says. 
The resurrected chili relleno went out to a table in the reserva room, the restaurant's semi-private dining room. On the wood-paneled walls hung framed news articles and accolades for the restaurant's award-winning chef. Beneath them, someone was eating food from the trash. Staff who had worked the dinner were shocked, and some discussed quitting. In text messages between Ryan and Wright reviewed by the pitch, the chef acknowledged the incident. It happened, Ryan says. I'm sorry. They can either quit or get over it. I'm not sure what else I can say. For Wright, that dinner was a turning point. Up until that point, I didn't respect him as a business owner, but at least he was a good chef. And that all went out the window. Since Port Fonda opened in Westport in 2012, it's had a reputation as a hip spot for mezcal and mid-priced Mexican food. At night, the music would pulse loud enough to bury all conversation. Thin, attractive women wearing Baldwin denim, a uniform required by the restaurant and purchased at the employee's expense, would circle the floor, delivering tequila shots and chimichangas to a sea of young professionals. Every night felt like a party. But when COVID-19 temporarily closed the restaurant's doors last March, the hangover started to creep in. Almost overnight, the whole city seemed to be talking about how to save restaurants. Some Port Fonda employees had started questioning whether there was anything worth saving. Over the past two months, the pitch spoke to 17 former Port Fonda employees, line cooks, servers, bartenders, managers. Their complaints ranged from sexual harassment to racism to psychological and verbal abuse, primarily from Ryan and his co-owner, Jamie Davila. Jamie Davila could not be reached for comment. As of early February, his LinkedIn page still lists him as the owner-operator of Port Fonda with the note, While I intend to keep my ownership in Port Fonda, I'm looking for a new opportunity to share my knowledge and skills. After initially agreeing to an interview, Ryan did not return calls or emails seeking comment on specific allegations. In a statement emailed to the pitch, Ryan says, I take accusations of this nature very seriously and personally. I feel for all the people who had a negative experience at Port Fonda and genuinely apologize for all the things that did happen. For all the things that were said that did not happen, there's nothing I can do or say or argue to make the situation better. What I can do is make sure I move forward with integrity and purpose as a person and for the industry. Ryan did not respond to a follow-up email requesting clarification on which things did or did not happen. Snort Fonda From the early days of the restaurant, Port Fonda felt more like a nightclub than a workplace. Staff say Ryan and co-owner Jamie Davila would frequently pour staff members shots before service, sometimes as early as 8.30 a.m. Josh Rogers, an assistant manager from 2012 to 2014, described a party atmosphere that superseded professionalism. I would show up for my Sunday night shifts at 4 o'clock, and there's Rack City railing at full volume, and servers are like, Jamie's already shit-faced, you've got to go talk to these three tables. As soon as I walk in, it was immediate damage control. Employees say Ryan was frequently intoxicated while on duty. When he was working the line during brunch shifts, Bartenders would pass him quarts of vodka on ice. When he was out in the restaurant, he would pound shots of Alto's tequila. Some employees took it as a cue. Staff members would get visibly intoxicated and not be able to take care of their duties or even be safe, says Ryan Rama, a bartender who worked at the restaurant from 2017 to 2019. When Ryan and Davila weren't drunk, they were often high on cocaine, so much so that employees colloquially referred to the restaurant as Snort Fonda, Rogers remembers Davila periodically excusing himself from the expo line, emerging a few minutes later from the bathroom and wiping his nose. Jamie would come up to me multiple times in the evening, gesture to his nose, and say, Am I clear? Davila's cocaine habit in particular was a frequent punchline, former server Marcus Dixon noted. 
One day we were cleaning up at the beginning of a shift, and someone had dropped like an Altoid, a little white Altoid, and someone else stepped on it, and whoever saw it was like, Jamie. Multiple employees say that they were invited upstairs to the condos where Davila and Ryan lived to do cocaine in the middle of their shifts. One bartender who spoke to the pitch on condition of anonymity says they felt pressured to participate. It was like, if I don't go upstairs and do this fucking cocaine, they're going to fucking fire me. From my experience, it had all the symptoms of an out-of-control cocaine problem, says one former line cook who asked not to be named in this story. He witnessed Ryan and Davila high often, and says both Davila and guests of the restaurant had offered him cocaine during shifts. But for most employees, it wasn't the substance abuse that was the issue. It was the aftermath. When Ryan was high or drunk, the cook says, he would go from being a very skilled, calculated, precise, very good at his job, very well-rounded chef, to just anger, spewing insults at his staff, throwing things, saying really hateful shit to people, and it was so difficult to do my job walking on eggshells waiting for the fallout. I'm working with a psychopath. Caitlin Corcoran, who worked as the bar manager from 2012 to 2014, says Ryan would throw plastic containers at her head when he was angry but the abuse was more often verbal. He called me fucking stupid more times than I can count, in front of the whole staff, screaming at me at the top of his lungs. Jessica Ryan, no relation to Patrick, an assistant manager who overlapped with Corcoran, says Ryan had screaming bouts in which he'd pepper staff with personal insults. I mean, completely belittling an individual in front of other people. And for the most part, these were women. At times, the chef would get overwhelmed by tickets spitting out of the kitchen printer or angry about how they'd been rung in and start throwing them in the trash. Sometimes, he'd throw complete or nearly complete dishes, plates and all, off the pass onto the floor. Rama recalled a particular brutal incident after the restaurant debuted a new menu. The kitchen was having a hard time keeping up with the orders. They weren't used to these new presentations and these new dishes, and he literally got so mad that he scooped everything that was in the window passed directly into the trash can probably wasting close to $600 worth of food in that one sweep. Dixon, who worked at the restaurant for more than five years, saw those incidents as some of the biggest red flags. We're busy, we're going down in flames, and here you are punishing us by throwing our guests food away, which is punishing them and punishing the kitchen, because they have to make it all again. That was the one big, huge moment where I was like, I'm working with a psychopath. Who would sabotage their own business like that? In his statement to the pitch, Ryan acknowledged that he spent many years as undiagnosed and unmedicated bipolar. He says he's since pursued medication and therapy, but I'm still not perfect, and I know that I never will be. What I do know is that I try to be better each and every day of my life. Some days are easier than others, but the intention is always present. But employees attribute the toxic culture at Port Fonda to more than Ryan's bipolar disorder, which was well known among staff and substance abuse. Andrea Peterson, who worked as a server and bartender for about two and a half years, says Davila could be just as volatile at times. She remembered running a few minutes late to one of her brunch shifts. He fucking threw a chair across the room and kicked a table, and he yelled at me, like in my face. Johnny Reynolds, Ryan's sous chef for the first three years of operation, says the restaurant cultivated a very barbarian style of management, and that he still struggled with guilt about his role in it. I remember one instance in particular, when we had a guy... He was going to be a kitchen manager. He wasn't doing very well. He wasn't managing the kitchen the way that we wanted, so I gave him an impossible task of making jambalaya in 30 minutes. And when he didn't complete that task, I fired him. I set him straight out. That's it. Reynolds attributes some of his behavior at the time to Ryan's abuse and aggression. He says he felt physically threatened by Ryan on multiple occasions. Reynolds drank heavily during shifts to get through the stress of the job. Late in Reynolds' tenure, his wife became pregnant, and he was working so often he hardly saw her. That was a turning point. 
Two months before her due date, he put in his notice. He didn't like the person he'd become. Port Fonda ruined my career. Most certainly ruined my love of the career. Absolutely, absolutely destroyed it. The atmosphere in the kitchen didn't seem to improve after Reynolds left. Reed Smith, a kitchen manager from 2018 to 2019, recalls a tense atmosphere where, at best, Ryan would deliberately intimidate his staff. At worst, he would lash out in profanity-laden tirades. He would just go off, and that happened a lot, where one thing would trigger it, and then he would just rant. And there's nothing that you can do. It's not a rational thing, and you just have to sit there and deal with it. Many employees, like Reynolds, stayed at Port Fonda for years despite the stress and abuse. The money could be good. The staff leaned on each other through the challenges. And on good days, Ryan could be charismatic and fun. He had regulars who loved him. He knew how to make diners feel like the center of the universe. One server, who asked to remain anonymous, worked at Port Fonda for more than six years. She says she knew she should have left sooner, but felt bonded to her co-workers like family. I always compare Port Fonda to a toxic relationship that I was in, where I was with this partner that treated me horribly and manipulated me on the daily, and did everything that you wouldn't want in a partner. But somehow, some way, I had Stockholm Syndrome and would always come back. There will never be a black person working in this restaurant. If Port Fonda was hostile to employees in general, it could be even more hostile to certain demographic groups. Multiple employees say they heard Ryan express anti-black sentiments in particular during their tenure. Sometimes the language was coded, for example, referring to tables of black diners as Mondays or Canadians. Other times, it was overt. Reynolds says Ryan had a massive bias against African Americans. A few times, and I mean candidly, without humor involved or any even like dark humor involved, he would say, there will never be a black person working in this restaurant. Corcoran confirmed that racism influenced the restaurant's hiring practices. She says she felt she wasn't allowed to hire black servers. He told me someone was the wrong color once. Corcoran and other two employees also described seeing a large Confederate flag hanging in Ryan's condo. There were definitely racist remarks made, says Dixon. It's pretty prevalent in the restaurant industry, and definitely anti-black statements were made. Definitely by Patrick. We would talk about it later like, did you catch that? Was that actually said? I want you to hire people I want to fuck. Young women had an easier time getting hired at the restaurant, but that could be its own curse. Coral Cusick, a server from July 2019 to June 2020, recalled co-workers laughing about how the restaurant would only hire pretty people. A glance around the floor at Port Fonda would confirm that. The majority of servers were female, and all were young and attractive. When I would interview people and then take applications to Jamie Davila, the first question was, which one's hottest, says Rogers. Jessica Ryan says that while she was never explicitly instructed to hire based on looks, Patrick Ryan and Davila would frequently remark on an applicant's attractiveness, making it clear who they wanted on staff. And Corcoran recalled a large-bodied server she'd hired who Patrick fired two weeks later because she wasn't on brand. He called her fat in a manager meeting, she says. I was like, what can I do to stop having to rehire people? And he was like, I want you to hire people I want to fuck. Looks-based discrimination is common, even tolerated, in the restaurant industry. The 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits employee discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, but not based on appearance in general, a loophole that keeps places like Hooters in business. But the looks-based hiring that took place at Port Fonda wasn't just about staying on brand. Employees say they witnessed rampant sexual harassment, primarily instigated by Ryan and Davila, but occasionally by other male staff. 
The harassment occurred both inside and outside the restaurant via social media and included sexual innuendo, offensive or crude sexual remarks, sexist comments, and unwanted physical contact. Peterson recalled a sexually charged atmosphere, where degrading comments about women, both staff and patrons, were constant. Patrick and Jamie would be like, oh, look at that hot piece of ass that walked in the door. Just very machismo bullshit like that, she says. Corcoran remembered Ryan saying of an attractive 20-year-old server, I would do coke off her asshole. Staff recall handsy and grabby behavior, where Ryan and Davila would frequently touch female staff, kiss them on the cheeks or foreheads, or caress their shoulders. Emily Overton had been training as a server and bartender for three days when she witnessed Davila grab a young female server by her hips from the back and pulled her in and was humping her on the floor. She quit on the spot. The industry is always like that. You joke around and you spend a lot of time together, Peterson says. But there's a huge difference between joking around and actually harassing people. The rise of social media has blurred the line between work and personal life in many industries, but in restaurants, which typically lack HR departments, the line can seem especially hazy. Cusick, who was 21 at the time, thought it was strange when Ryan followed her on Instagram from both the Port Fonda account and his personal account. She'd never had a boss follow her on social media before. Initially, Ryan's interactions on her posts were fairly innocuous, a like here, an emoji there. Then the DM started, friendly at first. At one point, my ex and I had broken up, and that's when the comments started to get a bit weirder, more sexual, Cusick says. In Instagram messages between Ryan and Cusick reviewed by the pitch, he'd respond to her Instagram stories from both accounts, complimenting her appearance or outfits. On a throwback photo of her as a child, I want that on a t-shirt. On a TikTok of her dancing, would basically pay for more of these. And once, not in response to anything, missing your smile. Cusick didn't see Ryan at every shift, but when she did, he would make similar comments. Once, while closing, Ryan brought a joint downstairs and offered it to Cusick while rubbing her shoulders. I left pretty soon afterwards, she says. I didn't really know what to think. I sat in my car for a minute and then went home and was like, okay, just gonna brush that one off again. When quarantine started in March, Ryan sent her a message, again from his personal account. Let me cook for you and some friends. Cusick declined, saying she was going out of town. Her response was warm and polite. She usually made a point of responding, sometimes with a cursory emoji or a like, because he was her boss. It made me feel like my job was at risk if I didn't respond or engage, she said. It made me feel really uncomfortable, but I didn't want to make it awkward, and I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want my job to be at risk. At the time, getting a job at Port Fonda was a really big deal. Patrick had a lot of connections, and if you worked there, you could go for a bigger-name restaurant. It was a good networking position. It's not verboten for a boss to follow an employee on social media. But when the business is an independent restaurant with an influential chef-owner and no clear protocol for reporting harassment, the balance of power is enormously tilted. In a tightly connected industry with high turnover, employees are often afraid to speak out publicly. They never know who their next boss might be. To server Shara Calandrino, the Baldwin uniforms and server training tests made the restaurant feel very corporate, but the restaurant never had the structure of a corporate restaurant, and employees say they felt like any complaints would lead to termination. There was this feeling that you could get fired at any moment, Calandrino says, and that's one of the reasons why I left. Managers at Port Fonda say they tried at various times to institute some structure, to curtail substance abuse, to fire problem employees, to minimize employees' exposure to Ryan and Davila. Wright, who was hired as Port Fonda's general manager in 2015, says, I had many conversations with Patrick and Jamie about how I was the fresh start. I was the one that was going to turn it around and how I was going to put people in line. 
it didn't happen. In 2017, Ryan was nominated for a prestigious James Beard Award for Best Chef Midwest, an accolade the restaurant frequently referenced in its advertising. Wright says she saw a shift in the way Ryan talked about his work after the award, but his behavior didn't really change. He'd be like, I'm a James Beard-nominated chef, and it's supposed to be a professional environment. And he would come downstairs, he would get everybody hammered, and then he would be mad about people drinking his booze and costing him money. And it was just never clear what he wanted. Still, Wright stayed at Port Fonda for five years. She helped close down the kitchen when COVID-19 restrictions forced the restaurant to shut down. After staff finished cleaning that night, Wright says she and Ryan cried together. They hugged. Then he ran both of his hands up the back of her sweater. It's been normal for way too long. In Westport, the blinds on Port Fonda's windows have been drawn since June. The restaurant had offered curbside pickup orders throughout May and had briefly reopened for patio dining in June, but within weeks, a staff member had tested positive for COVID-19. On Sunday, June 21st, Ryan met with three managers, including Wright, and informed them that as soon as enough staff tested negative, Port Fonda would reopen for full service, including indoor dining. Ryan delivered an ultimatum. Staff could get on board with the plan, or he would find new people that would. By Wednesday, June 24th, Ryan had fired the managers via text message and told them he'd changed the locks at Port Fonda. As of this writing, the restaurant has not yet announced an official reopening date. On January 5th, in response to a customer question on the restaurant's Instagram page, the Port Fonda account replied, Still waiting for the right time. Spring sounds really nice. When it does reopen, it seems likely to be Ryan's major focus. Although the chef was contracted to develop the town company restaurant and accompanying cellar saloon El Gold for Hyatt's Hotel Kansas City, his affiliation with both venues ended in January 2021. The hotel's general manager, Patrick Baldwin, declined to comment on specific personnel matters when asked about the reason for Ryan's departure. Ryan's apology and his staff's complaints are coming during a sea change for the restaurant industry. Over the past few years, high-profile chefs across the country have faced increased scrutiny and public backlash. Momofuku's David Chang for his rage and violent rhetoric. The Food Network's Mario Batali and celebrity chef John Besh for sexual assault and harassment. Even self-professed nice-guy chef Danny Boeing, who had spoken publicly about the profession's machismo and toxicity, failed to protect his employees from the same. Wright says she remembered hearing Ryan talk about the Mario Batali news when it broke about how the climate in restaurants was shifting in a way that warranted more careful behavior. But if Ryan was aware of the culture shift, he didn't seem able to locate himself within it. As the hospitality industry grapples with how to rebuild from COVID-19, many industry workers say labor issues and restaurant culture need to be part of the conversation. There shouldn't be a pass on toxic behavior or misogyny or sexual harassment, says Rama. That shouldn't be something that's normal, and it's been normal for way too long this hyper-testosterone-fueled pirate mentality. Ryan and Davila may have kept that pirate mentality alive at Port Fonda, but they're not unique among the restaurant industry in Kansas City, nor the restaurant industry in general. Most Port Fonda employees interviewed for this story described the restaurant's culture as unusually intense, but not especially novel. Sure, it was the weirdest, craziest, most toxic place they'd ever worked, but they'd worked weird and toxic industry jobs before. There are plenty of restaurants across the country whose staff could describe unwanted sexual advances, being berated to the point of tears, and witnessing plateware being thrown across a kitchen in a fit of rage, former bar manager Melissa Crawford wrote in an email to The Pitch. And that's exactly the problem. We have become so complacent with, so used to seeing this in restaurants and bars, that speaking out against it will instantly brand a red A onto your chest. 
It is hospitality industry culture that we do not bite the hand that feeds us because we are all easily replaceable. Patrick Ryan is not the exception, says Megan Briggins. She left unspoken whether he was the rule. Uh, today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Authentic Kansas City. Uh, Authentic Kansas City hosts a weekly safe meetup on Saturday evenings so you can make meaningful connections. Now, what does that mean? Well, authentic relating uh, is a practice described as a fast track to friendship. It's a collection of games, meetup sort of games that cultivate connections in a meaningful and deep way. And on a practical level, it's a gathering with great people and fun activities built to deepen friendships. And who doesn't want more friends? It, this is a cool new way to connect with strangers. We haven't talked to people in forever. Like, I, I know that sometimes it can sound like, hey, two truths and a lie. That's that's sort of an office icebreaker game. I would kill to play two truths and a lie with strangers right now and actually make some friends out of it. Uh, and this group has really formed it into something meaningful and well thought out and sort of overseen at a national level in terms of like, this is what works and this is how we make these things happen. The group gathers every week at Saturdays at 5.30 in Loose Park for authentic relating game nights. Authentic Kansas City believes in creating a safe space to connect in real life because they take the issues of online isolation, loneliness, and human connection very seriously, especially after a year trapped in our homes. Pre-registration is required, so find them at AuthenticKansasCity.com or Facebook at AuthenticKCMO. Authentic Kansas City, a safe space to connect in real life. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Kansas City street punk trio Tanqueray was one of my favorite live bands when they were a going concern back in the late 90s and early aughts. I saw them play G Coffee, El Torreon, many times, a raucous performance opening for the touchdowns at the bottleneck, and one notable occasion where they played two songs, including a cover of Tom Petty's You Wreck Me, at a friend's barbecue in Lawrence's Birchham Park before getting shut down by the police. Reunion shows in 2008 and 2009 were maybe some of the most fun I've ever had, getting sweaty and gross and pretending I was still a youngin', but it's been a hot minute since Tanqueray last rocked a stage in Kansas City, although bassist and frontman Jimmy Fitzner can still be found playing shows as part of the Americana group The Grizzly Hand, and The Uncouth did a stellar cover of the old-school Tanqueray gem Six Month Skin on a 7-inch just last year. What makes revisiting the band's posthumous release, Dirty Voices, and its first proper track, Everyone's Dead, notable at this particular point in time is that Greg Stitt, the former Kansas City and current Austinite behind the popular Compacted KC and Analog KC Instagram accounts, which document local recorded output, has started up a new Bandcamp page called the KC Punk Archive. Located at kcpunkarchive.bandcamp.com, the page currently only has Tanqueray's Dirty Voices, but Stitt hopes to make this, quote, an ongoing project to preserve and help circulate the history of punk-adjacent music from the greater Kansas City and Lawrence metro area from the 1980s through the mid-2000s, end quote. You can message him through the page to contact him about possibly adding your old punk band's music. I am actually digitizing a few things from my collection for the project as well, and can't wait to see what this grows into. In the meantime, here's Tanqueray with Everyone's Dead. I'm 
was Nick's Music Corner, and while we are on the subject of music, I would like to thank our sponsor for the podcast today, Records with Merit. If you are in the Westport area, you have got to go see Records with Merit. And if you are not, you need to check out their website and buy some records there. Records with Merit is my home away from home here in Kansas City. Uh, And by that, I mean it is also my home. Uh, It was two blocks away from the first place I lived here in town immediately walked in, was like, this is where I will be spending time. Uh, And Anne and Merritt, who run the place, immediately were like, yes, you are family. Welcome here. Uh, I think you'll be having a great time. They're at 1614 Westport Road in Kansas City. Uh, They're always there for you. Uh, The store only sells brand new vinyl, uh, which is is a rarity in record stores. Um, The selection is incredible. The new releases that are coming out are always great, and it feels um, particularly special, I think, to be supporting a local store uh, through this. Vinyl record sales have done pretty good during the pandemic, all all business things sort of considered, because uh, like, hey, we're just stuck inside. Uh, there is the record player. Please, please put on some new jams. If you have never tried out records before, I would highly suggest them because I have 10,000 of them. I'm a, I'm a little into it, but they sound incredible. It sounds a lot better than listening to something on Spotify. It is a really worthwhile pastime uh, that is physical and tactile and rewarding. Um, and that's just the collecting aspect of it. The other side of it is that records just rip. Uh, and there's also something incredible about going out and getting a record player. And I don't know, maybe your parents have a couple of records stored in the garage somewhere. You pull those out and you're like, wow, this is what my dad listened to when he was my age. That's pretty cool. Uh, And then you can go make your own uh, collection for the people in your future, uh, finding the stuff that matters to you today and rocking out to it. Uh, A rite of passage at the pitch for our interns uh, is that uh, one by one, they have come with me to Records with Merit to select uh, either their first record or their new favorite record, uh, if only because I play records constantly in the office, and uh, sometimes I'm like, you know what, you should get a say in this because uh, I can tell that maybe my taste is not aligning with yours. Anyway, Records with Merit uh, is available online for sales. Uh, they can do uh, delivery to your car uh, for drive-up stuff. They can mail to your house. Uh, or you can go into the shop, which is masked up and uh, plenty of hand sanitizer and socially distanced and just the just the best little place in the world. Uh, so records with merit. Go check them out. Tell them Brock sent you. They will give you 80 percent off. Uh, tell them Brock sent you. And uh, I'm told here that they will give you 80 percent off. Uh, merit, please feel free to reach out to me if that was inaccurate. Okay, I, I can feel Merritt already reaching out to let me know that was inaccurate. Let him know Brock sent you and uh, grab a free beer or a wine cooler uh, from uh, from in front of the checkout stand. Uh, there's also a good chance you'll just see me there because it's a wonderful place to be. That's Records with Merritt. <laughs> and now we have an interview with Dave Jorgensen, uh, who is the Washington Post TikTok guy. Uh, TikTok is a platform where you make short videos Uh, They are funny and weird and wild and mostly adopted by a generation slightly undermined. Dave is a journalist uh, in Washington, D.C., who convinced the Washington Post to let him be their full-time 
TikTok maker. Uh, and for the last year plus, he has released multiple videos every day of a person slowly going insane in his apartment, but also giving out incredibly helpful information, uh, dancing, smiling, and just having an all-around wacky time. Uh, he's from Kansas City. Uh, I watched him suffer through the uh, Super, Super Bowl defeat uh, like the rest of us. Um, my my wife first had questions about uh, where he was from uh, when we saw him dancing in a video with a bunch of uh, KC stuff on. We were like, why would he have that if not for... Oh, okay. He's one of us. So anyway, reached out, have this incredibly fun interview with him. I hope you enjoy. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Who are you? Introduce yourself to the audience. <laughs> this is my favorite uh, intro to anything ever. <laughs> you just get right to it. <laughs> Normally people like beat around the bush kind of like I am right now. And they're just like, oh, he's I, what? So Dave is a guy I found on Twitter, blah, blah. So I'm glad you just did this. Yeah, um, I am <laughs> a guy from Kansas City. Uh, I don't know if you're from Kansas City originally. So, uh, so I'm going to learn about you as we do this. But uh, uh, grew up in Kansas City and, and have been in Washington, D.C. now for, um, let's see, about seven years. And uh, in the last three or four years, I've been working at the Washington Post. And I was initially hired to basically make really goofy videos, but also videos that appeal to a younger generation on YouTube. And then I got really excited about TikTok when I found out about it late 2018. And long story short, pitched that as something that the Washington Post could do. And, and since then, it's been a pretty funky ride, uh, you know, trying to make TikToks now twice a day uh, in, in my apartment. I did. I anticipated TikTok being big. I did not anticipate a, a global pandemic, but I've been able to work that into the TikTok account. <laughs> well, you're also one of those only, one of the only people, even including in journalism, that I was just like, OK, so his job is fucking safe. Like there's no, like he doesn't need to go anywhere to do it. Uh, yeah. It'll be a little cabin fevery, but like, yeah, absolutely. Like, what well, you're exactly no right. Go, yeah, yeah. I, I um, I honestly like. Obviously, it's everything the and before and since the pandemic has been has been really tough on everyone. But I did have that like right away going in, and and you know we didn't know how long it's going to be, but we had an idea that maybe it'd be at least a few months. I was like, mm -hmm. I could, I could have some fun with this. Like uh, the, the pandemic's not fun, but I could have fun. And, and I think people would probably benefit from me, you know, having some kind of cabin fever in my TikToks. Uh, and I, as you probably noticed, like the first few weeks, even I was already like playing up this idea that, oh, this guy's actually going insane. And I had to like, sort of bring it back a little bit as we realized it was going to take, you know, a little longer than a few weeks <laughs> before we were back in the office. Um, but yeah, like the time hoppy stuff from my stuff and from March of last year, where it's like, Day eight, I've I've forgotten the language and created my own Incan language out of like uh, symbols, and I'm just like, oh, you, your jokes about like how insane you'd gone within one week, you, poor idiot Brock, you had no idea where this was going. I have exactly like like my most viral tweet for whatever that's worth of this entire thing was literally week two, and I said it's Tuesday as or as we call it now day, and I thought that was so clever and funny. And now I'm like exactly what you just said. I was just like, I that that was like maybe nine days in, and I was making this joke about how we don't know what day it is. Um, so you know, whatever. I guess we we just got to find the right humor for the right situation at the right time. So I, I'm so fascinated about your, uh, the pairing of your your platform and your content because you became a professional TikTokman uh, starting in YouTube, but then uh -huh. you 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 pivoted into doing more of this and like. I feel like the last few years have introduced uh, a number of apps where like 
the apps and their constraints have dictated the content in such an interesting way where it was like vine created such uh, a, a fascinating group of things and then like snapchat i never downloaded because i thought that was just for creeps but like now i need to have an only fans because if my friends want me to see them naked sure that's somehow less creepy uh so like what was it about TikTok that you were like i think that this pairs well to connecting was it just the demographics of like the age group and the way it was taking off or were you like this is actually my language now. I can do this. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I, there's so much I want to unpack with what you said initially, <laughs> uh, but I'll, just, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for now. But I, I will say that I had the same reaction to Snapchat, where like we were just all we did was make jokes about like this is just so you can send lewd pics to friends. But anyway, um, moving past that, six years later with TikTok, um, it was really both in, in the sense that yes, I, I did think that um it, it played to like my strengths to what i could do with TikTok, but i i also and i also felt that the audience itself was something that was really valuable and, and only growing and you know like TikTok now since really last year has aged up in the sense that there's still a lot of gen z on there of course but like plenty of millennial and gen xers and even even some boomers are on the app um and so so that obviously is a growing demographic for us and that's really valuable to anyone but especially the washington post which is a really old newspaper to try to reach people who don't know we're even in washington dc like most people think we're near seattle so um there's that Sorry, but then what? i seattle yeah we'll get this because they think we're in washington oh, state oh god oh yeah god. i had the same reaction oh. the first time i saw that comment i was a comment it was like hey i'm in seattle like are you guys near us and i was like no <laughs> Uh, unless I'm visiting, but no, I'm not. So, so like just the level of like just awareness and some people call brand awareness and that's fine. I don't like to think of it that way because I don't necessarily think like a social media manager myself. I think more of it as a video editor, which kind of gets to the other part of this, which is what I liked about TikTok was I was looking at it even in late 2018 and going, oh, I could have a lot of fun here with my own set of skills and video editing on this app. Um, it reminded me a lot of Vine in that way that you could really like, it was a short enough video clips that you could like make something look really cool and fun within 15 seconds and not have to spend like what I normally did like a week on a three minute YouTube video. I could like really use my skills to just narrow it into 15 seconds. All of the TikToks that I have found value in have been posted to Twitter, especially yours. Uh, so I, for the longest time, I didn't feel the need to actually have the app and I downloaded it for the first time. Uh, the eve of when it was supposed to be banned by the Trump administration. Right. What, what was the situation for you where you're like, this dude who has definitely never heard of this has made this some sort of culture war point. And like, there was like an actual midnight deadline where somehow it was supposed to be banned from the United States. What was that like for you, especially as a person who functions on that platform? Totally. Well, I'm going to make a lot of jokes about this. So I do want to say first before I do, that um, it, I, I certainly like agree with any kind of privacy concerns anyone has about any app. And, and what I said at that time and still say now is like, uh, we should be worried about China having our data, but it's also like well known that Facebook sells all of our data to third parties in China. So my thing was one always of those like- those things is like people being like, I can't uh, install one of the apps that would let people know I've been vaccinated or what have you. And I'm just like, but you're posting about this on Facebook. Like, right. They already it's all, all that information. <laughs> yeah. Which is like a really bleak thing to say, but you're like, like it's already out there. So that's what I always felt about it was like, I completely agree with what you guys are saying, but I, I think you've, you're kind of missing the, what's the word, the forest for the trees or whatever. Anyway. So there was that level of like, I, I never was too worried about it. I was like, I'm just going to make TikToks. I'm focused on creating. And then when this started to happen, 
Um, some people may know or, or not know or may not remember that, the, like, I don't know, you could call it a coincidence. I think at this point we're not calling it a coincidence. But when he, when President Trump decided he wanted to ban TikTok was, was shortly after on, it went viral on TikTok that uh, everyone should buy tickets to this Tulsa rally and just not go. And so that they anticipate more people being there and that it's going to be a really small crowd. And that's what happened. A lot of people on TikTok bought, like, not bought, but like bought reservation tickets for free. To this people Trump from rally. the K-pop world on a Juneteenth uh, yes. thing in Tulsa. So many layers of just like what the exactly. Fuck is You're a, so there's all these things, and and like that was like it, you could really look at the map of things happening and go like this probably is at least what what put TikTok on President Trump's mind. Um, but then everything he did after that was so rushed and so you know later declared constitution unconstitutional that I wasn't worried about it. Um, if anything, I'm more worried now if you know, you have something like the, the Biden administration who has a lot of people with a lot of experience. If they want to do some kind of ban, I think they would be much more effective at it. Um, so, yeah, when that was all happening, I, I was I was not too worried. But, you know, kind of to what your point where you said you downloaded it on TikTok, you know, de demolition derby night eve. Um, it kind of made TikTok much cooler for us that we were on it. Like that's the, that's the real sort of raw truth is that like all of a sudden way more people were on TikTok because they thought it was going to be gone soon. So it made it more exciting. It was like. You know, the last blockbuster is about to close in town. So let's make sure we all go there and and, you know, rent something and not return it. So uh, that was that. I, I like that level of it. It kind of made us the, you know, the bad guys of TikTok, even though that's that's not true. So in, in terms of what you cover, like you have had to cover this year in the same way that, like. It has taken a toll on other journalists and you've managed to find comedy uh, in amongst having to cover some of these subjects like, uh, you know, the protests over the summer, uh, the outrageous deaths, uh, toll from Corona, uh, the insurrection. I, I, I think that collectively at the office uh, and amongst friends, we have long had this concern about like, when we see you smiling and even having like a dark fun time that like somewhere deep down, you're like, but doctor, I am the clown Pajili. Like, are you okay? And how do you remain okay? <laughs> Um, yeah, I appreciate that. I, and when you initially reached out, you had like the best email of like, uh, you know, I just want to see, check in on you also like to make sure you're actually, okay. it was, it was awesome. It was my favorite pitch of all time. So, uh, the pitch anyway, uh, it was, it, it, it did, as I said, start with this, like, you know, I'm jokingly going crazy and let's all go along with it. And, um, I, I am fine. I'm, I am okay. And like, I, I definitely see what you're saying. And there's probably some truth to like, Oh my God, I have to make a TikTok about something horrible today. Let me try to like put some humor into it. And you could probably just even like realize that that, that is not easy to do. Um, I will say I do get a lot of energy off of the sort of reactions to it. Um, when I do post a TikTok that's on some, you know, something that's not exactly uplifting and people really respond to it and they have questions and things about it. So I get a lot of energy, honestly, and, and it's probably a stereotypical answer, but um, you, I get a lot of energy from the followers and the people who uh, then interact with it. So um, it is difficult, but I do know that like by setting myself these like fake deadlines of two TikToks a day, which was totally my idea. No one told me I had to do it. But by doing this, uh, it's really helped me kind of kind of just keep going and going. And, uh, you know, especially now that there's some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, it makes it even more easy. But certainly there are days I wake up and I'm just like, there is a lot of bleak news. And sometimes I just choose to go, you know what, everyone is aware of what's happening right now. I'm just going to do something on this other news event that's just not even uh, at all related to the pandemic or just like terrible things happening to people. <laughs> 
what, one of the things I find most fascinating about what you do is that you're getting to live this, I, I think, childhood fantasy of being like the schoolhouse rocks or the reading rainbow of like yes. educating yes. a generation, but also uh, like there are so many days that that we wake up and that I think that what I would do would just be to look at the camera and say, fuck you. Like, how do you approach like what you think your age demographic is? How do you keep things like square with that? <laughs> I think what's, I, I might be, and I, I might be a little naive about this, but I do personally, I really do believe that Gen Z and just generally like the base of TikTok fans um, is a more realistic group of people. And also the fact that they, you know, essentially grew up with a smartphone. Like there's a, a huge percentage of people on TikTok that have never like were born in 2007 and literally like do not know what a flip phone would even feel like in their hands or just on someone else using anything like that. So I the, the reason I say all that is because I think they're much more internet savvy. So there is like this, this level of like um, realism where we're, they're almost already past the whole like Instagram fakeness of it all where, you know, um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to get, I'm, I guess I'm kind of giving a rambling answer, but it's just that this, like, I feel like I don't have to say that. I think everyone kind of already knows that. And I definitely am like, can be sarcastic in my replies and the TikTok comments. And I, I don't feel like I'm really putting on a show necessarily. And if I am being like extra perky for some reason, like you clearly know I'm joking. Um, like I, someone got someone like really on Twitter, got angry about the, this peeps TikTok I posted and like I, you can tell in the TikTok, I'm purposely being like, Lah! like, like, like overactive, hyperactive YouTuber from 2014. Like, I, I feel like that was very clear to our audience, but like this older person on Twitter was very angry about it. Um, and so, you know, whatever, that's, that's their problem. But um, what I like about TikTok is I think they recognize that like, it's, like I don't, I don't have to say that so much. I think, I think everyone kind of knows that there's just a little bit like, we're all kind of going through it together. There is a, a modern issue that stemmed from the last five so years of uh, of journalism in general, which has been that uh, there's been such a fear and such an antagonism around it and the concept of being called fake news or being ignored that so many outlets have tried to move to so hard to showing that they have no bias whatsoever that it actually doesn't become centrism. It, it actually leans right and becomes a very tricky thing to, to have no voice. And that's one of the things that I think uh, makes the pitch in Kansas City matter uh, a lot these days. Uh, mm -hmm. More than one person, knowing that we were doing the interview, were like, so hey, as with him being the only person whose name that most people know that works uh, at that publication, like, what level of editorial oversight are you given? Or did they just give you like the command to go ham on whatever <laughs> you wanted? Like, have you ever been pulled in and like scolded or been told like, that was a bit much or does any does anyone check it before it goes up what is your process like with editorial oh um, <laughs> i i've not been scolded but i can tell you i fully have expected that to happen like a million times but um no but but the reason i'm not is because like the short reason is i have two managers directly above me one of them i worked with at my previous job too so i basically have like a five or six year working relationship with her and they both have to approve each one of my TikToks. Um, and the onus, it doesn't fully go on them. Like my face is on the video. So like I'm the one creating it, but I, I think that, you know, the way most newsrooms kind of work is like, if the editor lets this go by, then, you know, they're partially responsible. So they're very careful about 
when they tell me yes and no. What's nice about, and the reason I mentioned like the sort of working relationship I have with my manager is that um, I make the TikToks first and then I go and go, can you approve this? So there is that, that is where the freedom comes in, in terms of like, I'm just gonna try to make this and show you, I'm not gonna try to give you a script because I don't think, I don't feel like I can explain like what this is gonna look and feel like until you see it. And that's true, I honestly like- It would be so much weirder for you to try and even explain, even after the video is done. Right, in words. Work in Totally. It's so hard. And especially if you're not necessarily tuned into like, you know, because so many of them have like TikTok trends baked into them or sounds or whatever, that like, if I'm trying to do that, it's just so hard to explain. So I do get that level. But I'll tell you, like today, we had the first, I guess, technically the second TikTok, it was going to be the first one. We spent three hours going over the language on it. It's like one sentence. And it's the one where I'm being this old man. And we were really trying to get like this, the um, effectiveness of vaccines correct. Um, because the reality is what I was just trying to get across is that no one's talking about that all of these FDA approved vaccines are were shown in trials to be 100% effective against hospitalization and deaths. Um, and there's like some random like statistics that people showing up, they're like, maybe it's not 100%, maybe it's 99.99%. So we had to go through that language forever. And we essentially came up with the exact wording and like five people had to look at it. And I'm grateful for it. But that uh, that's all to say that it, it sometimes, you know, the actual approval and post-production of a TikTok takes about 20 times longer than the shooting of it. So there is a process, but I do have enough freedom that they let me dance around and no one has scolded me yet. But I can imagine when we go back to the office, there's going to be like five meetings about <laughs> what have you been doing for two years? <laughs> Well, what you're bringing up also raises a really interesting question, which is that like I, the the details and the facts that you put out into the world are are well researched and go through a team, and you make sure that you are giving the best possible information available. Mm-hmm. How does that square with an audience that just sees a guy dancing alone in his apartment? Like, is there you, do you have confidence that people like understand that you are not just making up shit off the top of your head that like you are actually providing data? Does that come from being the Washington Post TikTok guy that at least that there is like this idea that like they wouldn't let him say this if this wasn't accurate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's true. I, I think like when we first started and this was intentional that the first few, like even really the first year, most of the TikToks were just kind of goofy and they were just like introduce other people in the newsroom when we were still in the newsroom. Um, and that was just kind of to sort of gain trust and like sort of just, as I would say, it's like we're just the the dorky uncle that's just trying to fit in and hopefully you guys like us. That was just the whole point. And so now I think we did build enough trust for what it really became pretty much every TikTok is somewhat news oriented, if not completely. Um, there is a level of trust there. And and I every single TikTok I do now is based off of an article, at least one, maybe multiple articles that the post has written in the last like anywhere from two hours to two days. Um, so often they're linked in the homepage if I find them super relevant to the TikTok. So um, essentially what I'm saying is I, I like back up my work with actual post reporting. So um, if it does come up, they can just go. I can just literally point them to it in the comments. And as I mentioned, TikTok is aging up more. So I think there's a lot more people in the comments who are like asking a lot more questions um, that are directly relevant and really challenging it. And I'm happy to like answer it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I. I to answer your question, people are, I think there's a trust and I think I'm able to, if I can kind of get there and reply quickly enough, then it's kind of been solidified, which is really important. Having become uh, an, a, such an important contributor to a publication with such an important history uh, to, to journalism and to the United States in general, 
I guess I have to ask, uh, who is your least favorite coworker? <laughs> what writer do you wish they would get rid of, especially in the opinion department? <laughs> I can't say that, but uh, I can make like 20 jokes and that they, they all would just come off wrong. Um, how bad. I, I don't, I don't well, have well, a least let's favorite. let's cancel you for something different. What's the best barbecue <laughs> in Kansas City? Oh, well, okay, the, the standard, okay, actually, I might, people might hate me for this, I think. I think only because it might come off as elitist and I would I would agree. Like Jack Stack is actually my favorite and I feel like it's the only sit down one that is in the list of people's favorite barbecues, but I, I think it actually is the best. I the thing about Joe's too is that, you know, as you well know, like I the last five years at least when I come home to Kansas City, I I it takes like twenty years just to get a Z Man. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I'd rather. I'd actually rather just like show up at Jack Stack and sit down and really go for it. That, that's kind of that's my thinking going into it now. Is I have so much. I'd just rather like when I'm back in Kansas City, take a full night and sit at Jack Stack. But that that probably is my favorite barbecue still. Well, then let's uh, let's make people people feel better about you uh, being a Kansas City boy <laughs> by by uh, tying in uh, that you uh, share a Kansas City trauma, which is that you endured uh, the uh, the Super Bowl game that we did. You actually had a cutout of you uh, at the game uh, who looked to be having a great time through a very bad time. What was that like? That was so funny. I I was the like the whole second half. I was like, please just cut to my cutout. That would be so funny because I so intentionally took a picture that I was just so joyful and like yeah. And I sent them like twenty pictures, uh, and they also said they were going to send me it back. They never sent it. I think they just probably thought I I didn't want it, but I did. Um, the, the I really got lucky though because I gambled. They asked me for that like a month and a half ahead of time. And I was like, well, the Chiefs will be there. So I was lucky that the Chiefs were there at least. And I was feeling so proud of myself for having worn the Chiefs jersey in it. And that, yeah, um, that, that that was sad. But, but you know, at least I got to be there in some way. It, that was actually the, the it, it was not that one in particular, but it was that uh, the wife and I had been watching your videos for a while on and off. And then uh, around pandemic time, you just started wearing more and more Kansas City stuff. And she was like, what's, what's happening here? Why is this? It's like, <laughs> Oh, okay. Now, now, now we are all fully invested. Um, I, yeah, I, did, I didn't have any buttoned-up Chiefs shirts, so finally, when I could just wear casual stuff, that's when it all came out. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you got a pandemic puppy. I did. Uh, she's <laughs> she's in our little network of doggy daycare. Uh, our entire eleventh floor of this apartment is there's like a bunch of dogs, and so right now she's a she's a, at Kylo's house. <laughs> Later. Oh, we'll be I thought pirate. you were just saying that they like cleared a floor of the building and it just belongs to the dogs I, during the day. No, time. but in a way, that's what it feels like because I'll just open the door and I'll say the name of the dog she's going to, and she'll she knows which apartment that is, and she runs there, so that's where she's now. I. I, I have a theory that is one of my biggest concerns about us coming out of this, which is that um, not only did the last year and last four years provide that people live uh, in, in very different realities at this point, uh, but that over the course of pandemic, uh, I think everyone on, on both sides has built up a series of incredible chips on their shoulder. Uh, like, I know which one of my neighbors don't wear masks. I know which neighbor went to the local grocery store and like, filled their cart with toilet paper despite the thing being like please buy one and like those chips have built for me and i'm sure that they've built for them uh i i have such a genuine fear that we leave this and we are all just such awful people to each other do you have 
a better outlook on that? Do you remain positive and optimistic about the future of who we are? Do you, not to use the cursed goddamn word, but do you believe in the power of unity? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I shall never say it, but yes, I believe. No. It. no um, yeah, I, I do. I, I think I, I, I'm generally a more optimistic person. So you did ask the right person in that sense. It would be bad if I said no, because then you, that'd be really screwed. Uh, if an optimistic person told you there's no chance, but um, it, yeah, I truly was afraid of your answer on that one. Yes. No, so. no, no. no. <laughs> I, I feel pretty positive. I mean, for me, it, it, I think there's just like, it's, it's sort of related to what I was saying about this younger generation being more internet savvy. I think there's just a lot more self-awareness in like anyone really that's like, I've been around long enough on the internet to recognize that that is what's making a lot of us pretty angry. Um, that's, and that's really my viewpoint, but I feel like every little rift in family or friendships that I've experienced is like almost directly related to something internet wise. And, you know, of course that's the double-edged sword where I've been able to kind of make a living off of this fun side of the internet. But meanwhile, a lot of people I know are sort of being radicalized. Um, so I, I, what I'm hopeful for, and I've seen a lot more of it, is this kind of self-awareness of what, uh, these, or these things are doing to us and what like different ways people are being radicalized. And I think it's going to take a while, but um, I will be especially optimistic if there's probably just a little bit more. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to like call, like sound like I'm advocating for something, but just like general, like as we were even talking about with like, um, you know, regulation of, of different apps. I think regulation in general for all these things is going to help a lot because my full my whole viewpoint about the whole aspect of unity is just that we're all being radicalized even if we don't know it. So um, I think as long as that self-awareness keeps up, then it should be all right. I got one last question here before I let you get back to talking to yourself alone uh, in your apartment. Um, <laughs> it's just like this too. I just, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, my computer's name is Brock actually. So this is helpful. Oh no. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to know what is the TikTok from this year, the video that you made that you were like, no, I can't post this. Maybe maybe this one is just so weird or like reveals a little too much about how far gone I am at this point that you were like, let's skip this one. I'll tell you what it was and it wasn't even posted. You're going to get an exclusive uh, because I just don't care at this point. I was so mad we did, they didn't let me post it, but I also was completely aware of why. Like I got it. I understood, but I was like, just let me do this. So last summer, I was actually, um, <laughs> we did, <laughs> this, this is so dumb. We did a haiku uh, contest and it was like, send in your haikus um, and I'll read like the 12 best ones on TikTok. And, I, and so what I did was I, I picked my favorite ones and I sort of like put myself in the situation that the haiku was about. And so as you probably know from fifth grade, uh, shout out to Mrs. Aldrich at Blue Jacket Flint. Uh, as you probably know, haikus are five, seven, five. So it's just five seven, syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So a lot of people just send in like syllable, like haikus that were just completely silly. And this one person just said in one that was, uh, I still had to remember. I literally had it memorized because it was a random orga like organization of words, but it was like pee, pee, poo, poo, pee, poo, 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 pee, pee, poo, pee, 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 poo, poo, something like that. And I just sat in a toilet and just read that with a straight face holding a newspaper. Um, and they like immediately they're like you can't do this <laughs> like they were so and i just my problem is i'm so stubborn about the dumbest things and i was just, i was so mad i was so mad and then like the next day i was like why did i get so angry about that but there's anyway there's a TikTok that exists where uh i did all that and and um 
you know, it was a contest. So I did tell that person like secretly that they won and I sent them their like, their, you know, thing for winning. <laughs> but Look, we have, we've had so little to bring us joy. Absolutely. If you want to, on behalf of the Washington Post, share a picture of you on the toilet. You should have that joy. It's all it's all we have. <laughs> I also found this like what looks like an outhouse where I did it anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, Kansas City loves you. Thank you for representing us so well. When you come back next time, let's sit down at Jack Stack. <laughs> I, yes, well, a formal dinner or, you know, we can go. Wait, what's your favorite place? Let me tell me that first before I go. I can't do that. My God, what? I live here. That's what I should have said. Very smart. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye. And that has been the Streetwise podcast from The Pitch in Kansas City. I've been your host, Brock Wilbur. We are on thepitchkc.com every day doing news you can use. And if you ever feel like you have a couple of bucks you can throw away to help keep the lights on because you appreciate what we do for you and or the city and or for strangers, Please toss a bucket out there, become a sustaining member, or, you know, just drop us a little note and say thanks. Say a nice thing. It's amazing how good it feels to hear a nice thing from someone. We really appreciate it. Anyway, uh, we have an incredible scavenger hunt event coming up uh, at the start of April here. Uh, tickets are still available for it. It is wild. I do not know how or why we put this together, but it has come together very well, and it's going to be fun. Uh Tickets are exceptionally cheap. You and some friends can take part in, you know, just check it out on our website. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate you guys being there. Uh, pitch in and we'll make it through. Until next time, have a bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.